So this morning we are continuing to look at a two-part summary of um, what the Bible says about sexual morality. Why are we doing this? Well, this is kind of the conclusion of our introductory thoughts before we kind of launch into the tech, the course proper. But it's really important that we look to what Scripture says so that everything in the rest of the course, when we're in a sense unpacking this, we have a clear conviction that what we're saying, what we're believing, isn't just somehow Vatican stuff or Catholic stuff, but this is all right there in the Bible. And it, it's so integral to the package of being an authentic Christian that when we compromise on some bit, it's all here the Bible we're compromising on as well. So that's kind of what we're gonna say here, we will repeat through the course, but that's the key takeaway I'm wanting you to get from uh, the lecture two days ago and from today. So what did we look at? Uh, we s looked at how fertility and unity and complementarity are the two key truths given to us in the Genesis account. We noted how the prophets developed that. Uh, the wisdom literature gives us in particular some examples, some particular models of romantic love. Um, and we're about to begin with where the New Testament takes us. And the question we were beginning to look at at the end of our last lecture was this difficulty that there are some things in the New Testament that are very different from the Old Testament. And how is that possible if it's the same God teaching throughout that? How can something seem to be permitted and fine in the Old Testament and then be very severely condemned in the New Testament? So the examples looking at uh, polygamy, so you know, great towering figures in the Old Testament like Abraham and David and Solomon who have lots of wives, then divorce and remarriage. Um, how is that something permitted in the Old Testament, but then the Lord Jesus very explicitly condemns it? How is that possible? Yeah? It wasn't explicitly. It was a paradoxical in the Old Testament. It seemed permissible, but it was never really uh, explicitly permitted because uh, there were always negative outcomes. That was the summary interpretation I was giving you yeah, last time. Very good, yeah. Um, so as I was introducing a kind of an attempt at a theological analysis of this, um, I started the kind of the basic point is that revelation through the scriptures is a gradual moving to the fullness of revelation in Jesus Christ. So this phrase in Galatians, in the fullness of time, Jesus came in the fullness of time, the fullness of revelation, that only then was it possible for his chosen people to be ready to hear it, ready to understand it. Only then was everything said. And I made the comparison with teaching in general, that you, when you're teaching, you work from simple things to more complicated things, to, that you can't give everything to the child when the child is five years old, 
the child grows in its capacity to understand, but also the different truths the child understands build on other things it knows. And God is the best of teachers, and he knew what he was about in the unveiling of his truth in the course of Revelation. But there are some significant changes between the Old Testament and the New. So how do we make sense of that? Well, I said I was going to offer you three models of how we can make sense of that. So, you know, when you do theology, good theologians often disagree with each other. Yeah, often we like it to be tidy. Wouldn't it be nice if all the theologians throughout the history of the church all said exactly the same? Well, then that wouldn't be theology. That wouldn't be faith-seeking understanding to understand the deposit of faith. That would somehow then be the deposit of faith if it was that clear-cut. So three different theological explanations for this difference. So the first I went through is what I described as that approach. So this is now page seven of the notes, uh, the bottom section there, three possible explanations with particularly, um, particularly with polygamy and concubinage. And I started that first one, um, the title there saying, the Old Testament never actually permitted these practices. That would be the approach uh, of Scott Hahn, Jeff Cavins, and they note in kind of articulating this that although we see these Old Testament figures doing these things, and although God doesn't directly, or in many cases, directly condemn it, that's not the same thing as saying it was permitted. And they follow what I described as a narrative approach in teaching in the Old Testament. How does the Bible teach? It teaches a narrative that it's rare in the Old Testament to find um, explicit commentary rather you're supposed to read the narrative hear the story and learn from that what is being described so the examples I gave so with Abraham he has a wife and he has a concubine how do we know that that was a bad thing to do because the descendants of those two women are at enmity forever. Gideon has many wives um, and many sons. How do we know that he shouldn't have had many wives? Because the narrative describes how the rivalry among those sons of different mothers, um, one son kills all 70 of the others. Um, Similarly, David and Solomon, it's very explicit in the text, lust was their undoing. So if we know the narrative of what's being taught there, the Jeff Caven, Scott Hahn approach to this issue is to say actually even in the Old Testament, even though there isn't explicit condemnations, the narrative is saying they did this, don't you do this. And that's what's called a narrative approach to um, interpreting the Old Testament. Comments, thoughts on this? Okay, over the page then, page eight. So the second 
school here. Um, this is, I'm going to outline to you the approach of St. Thomas Aquinas, the greatest theologian in the history of the church, and St. Augustine, the second greatest theologian in the history of the church. And I'm going to say I disagree with both of them, which is a rather um, bold thing to do, yes. Um, before going through the detail, why does St. Thomas and St. Augustine say what they say? I think at the heart of their approach is a desire to not contradict scripture. And so they construct, particularly with St. Thomas, I think he elaborates here a system that really isn't consistent with what he says about natural law in general, but he's wanting to be faithful to scripture. Okay, so what does he say? So, point two here. In this school, in the old law, God gave a dispensation to individuals from certain laws. And I note this is the explanation of St. Thomas who follows St. Augustine. I say, I consider this to be an inadequate analysis, but it is offered by the two greatest theologians in the history of the church. So according to St. Thomas, natural law forbids polygamy. He says, but not as an exceptionless law. And according to St. Thomas, God himself granted dispensations to the patriarchs. I note these dispensations aren't actually recorded in the scripture. Tyler, could you read that block quote? So this is from St. Thomas in the supplement to the Summa. So the Bible doesn't record this dispensation being given, but St. Thomas is kind of saying, well, it must have been given for them to kind of do this. Um, and he says there, in order that there'd be going to be an, enough offspring for God's new religion, God's chosen people. Okay, let's go through that in a bit more detail here. So. Natural law forbids a plurality of wives. And all the quotes here, this is all from St. Thomas. In its first precepts of the natural law, which bind all persons, children are to be raised in marriage. So St. Thomas says, the begetting and rearing of children is the primary end of marriage. But he says, one husband can fulfill this end for multiple wives. Thus, having multiple wives neither destroys nor hinders this end. See the logic here? If I have three wives, um, I have more children. The primary end of marriage is having children and educating and raising them. That's not contradicted by having multiple wives. The secondary precepts of the natural law, which thus bind most but not all persons, a husband and wife owe each other fidelity, which forbids multiple spouses. He says, having multiple spouses, though it does not wholly destroy the second end, the union of the spouses, it hinders it considerably. For there cannot easily be peace in a family where several wives are joined to one husband. It is therefore evident from what has been said that plurality of wives is in a way against the nature of law 
and in a way not against it. So kind of, I don't think this really fits with the way he does natural law in any other context, but he's wanting to say these good people in the Bible did this, so we've somehow got to create a system to make it make sense. Okay, third stage of the argument here. Thus, God could give the patriarchs a dispensation for multiple wives. Um, Michael, could you read this quote from St. Thomas? It is stated... It is stated that the law was set because of transgressions, namely murder and prohibition. Now the old law mentions plurality of wives without any uh, prohibition thereof, as appears in Deuteronomy 21.15. The man had two wives, etc. Therefore they were not transgressors through having two wives, and so was law. Okay, so that is not even in one page, a summary of the approach of St. Thomas. Comments, thoughts? It doesn't seem to work with the whole, like, virtue ethics. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Any other thoughts? Seems kind of ad hoc. Yeah. But you see, my, my basic point about why is St. Thomas saying this, he's wanting to be faithful to Scripture. Uh, and I think there's a really important methodological point there. Um, but there is maybe something of a kind of, what well, in modern terminology, a fundamentalist approach to Scripture rather than thinking more broadly how to approach the, the texts. Um, so I've described this for you because this is the big thing in the tradition. I don't think it can works. Um, I don't remember the detail of that, but I think it's going to be the exact same argument. Because um, a concubine can raise up a child for you, so that would seem in that structure to be against the secondary precepts, but an exception is possible if somehow God grants the, in, the dispensation which the patriarchs received by an inspiration that they just didn't write down in the Bible. Um, we taught that a lot, yes, yes, indeed. And that is... And in the fullness of the New Testament, the fullness of Revelation, 
this is really clear. Um, okay, third approach to this dilemma, um, which in a sense is in harmony with the first approach of Scott Hahn and Jeff Cavins, without needing to use the language of narrative uh, as a model of how you teach scripture. So the third point here, notes these were restrictions, not permissions, at least with respect to polygamy. So open quote, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. The two commandments regarding polygamy are both phrased in the conditional, i.e. presuming polygamy is occurring and then seeking to restrict it, restrict it to defend the rights of the woman. Either the text is phrased in the conditional, not as a command. And in a sense that therefore is saying, even in the Old Testament, the whole thrust of the trajectory of Revelation is against this, not permitting it. But presuming it's happening and telling you to, well, if you're doing that, you've got to at least do this for the, the woman. I think that'd be, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be a similar point. Okay, let's move on specifically, and it's still the same dilemma set of issues, divorce and remarriage on page nine. So divorce and remarriage. I note, first of all, the law of Moses was less permissive of divorce than is generally supposed. You know, don't we have as our general way people talk, well, in the Old Testament, divorce and remarriage was permitted. And you might think, well, there must therefore have been hundreds of places in the Old Testament where it said that. Actually, there's only one place in the entire Old Testament where there's this permission. Uh, David, could you read that text? So this is from Deuteronomy. A man takes a wife and marries her. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter husband dislikes her and writes her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. That is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring guilt upon the land which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. So I note that the phrase is the text is phrased in the conditional rather than as a command. The text presumes divorce is occurring and restricts it. So when you read that text, it is very far from a glowing endorsement of divorce and remarriage. And this is the only text in the Old Testament that can be pointed to permitting divorce and remarriage. And you know, at the time of the Lord Jesus, kind of the big debate among the rabbis was what qualified as an indecency that the husband finds in his wife. That her cooking isn't good enough, that her cleaning isn't good enough, that there were rabbis who said kind of any reason the man finds in the woman 
would be grounds for him to dismiss her, but he does then have to give her a writ of dismissal. Um, and other rabbis were much more restrictive. But this was the only text they were able to point to. going to comment on that one. <laughs> just a fact. Just a fact. Okay. Uh, okay, point three on the list here. The Lord Jesus's, his own interpretation makes the permission seem conditional. For your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, it was not so. Um, going to look at that text a bit more on the next page. Then point four, St. Paul. What does St. Paul say on this? Uh, Christopher, could you read that line first to the married? To the married I give charge, not I but the Lord, that wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, let her remain single, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Can I note that St. Paul attributes this command directly to the Lord? Not I, but the Lord, even though that's not recorded in any of the four Gospels. So, you know, there are things... The Lord said that I aren't in the four Gospels. Have you done canon law yet? Are you doing canon law at the moment? So this thing called, you have done it? We're doing it. Yeah, we're okay. doing it. Okay. So this thing that you will go through in detail called the Pauline privilege in canon law flows out of this. Namely that a non-sacramental marriage, i.e. a Christian married to an unbeliever, is dissoluble. The Christian may not simply dismiss the non-believer spouse, but if the non-believer wishes to depart, he or she may depart. The initiative remains with a non-believing spouse. St. Paul says, in such a case, the believing brother or sister is not bound. Paul reminds the Christian spouses that God calls them to live in peace. So the Pauline privilege is not a sacramental bond, it's therefore not indissoluble, and therefore if there is a separation, you are free to marry in a sacramental bond with some future husband in favor of the faith, if that is somehow gonna support a number of different conditions, but could be the, the Christian upbringing of your children or something. That's not the same as a sacramental marriage, which is indissoluble uh, and may never be separated from. Point four on that list, St. Thomas. So I see the, the previous dis previously described three explanations for polygamy also hold for divorce and remarriage. So St. Thomas says, although to put away one's wife is wrong in itself, Divorce and remarriage nevertheless became lawful by God permitting it. And again, did God actually permit it or did he just restrict it in a text that assumes it's happening? Okay, so this page, very brief summary, scripture on divorce and remarriage. We will have um, a much longer look at that question 
later in the course. But today's lecture is just, what does the Bible say? Okay, page 10. So titled this page, uh, Jesus and Sexuality. So I said, the Lord built on rather than repudiated the Jewish teaching he came to fulfill. Three points here. He listed sexual sins among the vices that flow out from a man's heart and defile him. Uh, Daniel, could you read that block? Quote. So when you hear the kind of liberal progressive argument, well, you know, Jesus didn't say anything about sex. That's just not true. Note next point. He tightened up on adultery, making it a matter of heart and eyes, not just to the body. Philip, can you read this quote for us? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman must be has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And then in particular, he developed the Old Testament teaching so as to prohibit divorce and remarriage. Uh, David, could you read this? that the Lord takes us back to the beginning um, with Adam and Eve. Any brief comments here? Just repeat that point I've said. So when you get this line, well, you know, Jesus didn't say anything about sex. It's just not true. Uh, he builds on what went before and he tightens it he doesn't loosen it. It's not just that he builds on what went before and says nothing more. No, actually, he makes it a bit more restrictive. Um, okay, related to this, the dignity of women. So in a culture where women were not the equals of men, the Lord affirmed female dignity and equality in a number of ways. He spoke of adultery as an offense against the woman, whereas the Jewish law spoke of it in terms of being an offense against the husband. He had a friendship with Mary and Martha and with women who accompanied him. He spoke openly with the Samaritan woman at the well and gave her the dignity of being an apostle and telling others of him. 
And he chose to make women his, the first witnesses of his resurrection. So all of these, you know, that fits a broader package of what that does to the presentation of sexuality if women are seen as having a greater dignity than they were seen before the Lord Jesus. Page 11, celibacy and virginity. I note here, probably no teaching is more countercultural in our culture, especially than celibacy. As noted above in Judaism, a life of celibacy was abnormal, perhaps even sinful. Nonetheless, the Lord Jesus was single, St. Paul was single. So, what does the Lord say about uh, virginity, celibacy? So, the, the gospel teaching on this comes immediately after the Lord's teaching forbidding divorce and remarriage. Christopher, can you read this quote for us? So he also commended those who have set aside wives in order to follow him. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of heaven who will not receive manifold more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So the Lord is clearly here speaking about uh, celibacy, being single, being, to use the rather dramatic term, a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. St. Paul likewise commended celibacy. Tyler, can you read um, that block there? That's where you get this whole thing in the tradition of a, an undivided heart. That to be celibate means I can love the Lord with an undivided heart. And for us as celibate priests, that's not quite the same in that it's a cleaving to the Lord that frees us to be configured to his bride, the church. So that undivided heart is a you know, the religious is directly just about loving the Lord undividedly. For us, it's an apostolic charity. I'm free to love the Lord, uh, love his bride as my bride, because I'm configured to him. 
So many patristic commentators onwards, uh, you know, when St. Paul says that the elder must be a man of one wife, that one wife, my bride, is the church. Now at the bottom section here, I've got a string of bullet points wanting to point out in the tradition this, this teaching that celibacy is a higher state than marriage. And before reading through those quotes, what does that mean? It doesn't mean the celibate is himself better than a married man. It doesn't automatically make him so. It does mean his state of life objectively speaking is a higher state of life is more directly configured to unite him directly easily speedily to the lord okay reading through these quotes here first from matthew he was able to receive it let him receive it then he who marries his betrothed as well he who refrains from marriage will do better. Vatican II says, the church teaches the surpassing excellence of virginity consecrated to Christ. Then I quote from Pius XII, his encyclical on virginity. This doctrine of the excellence of virginity and of celibacy and of their superiority over the married state was, as we have already said, revealed by our divine Redeemer and by the Apostle of the Gentiles, in those two quotes above. So too it was solemnly defined as a dogma of the faith by the Holy Council of Trent. Okay, so that's ranking it pretty definitively. A dogma. Now I'm quoting John Paul II, who takes that same truth, but as is often the case, phrases it in a more pastorally appealing, more apostolic manner. He says here, virginal love goes directly to the person of Christ through an immediate union with him, without intermediaries. A truly complete and decisive spiritual espousal, whereas the married cleave to God through the intermediary of the spouse. Yes, yeah, so the married do cleave to the Lord, but through their spouse. That is the path marked out for them to cleave to the Lord. And that is truly a cleaving to him. It is truly a path to him. But it isn't the directness, the simpleness of the, the virgin cleaving directly to the Lord with an immediacy. So, Next bullet point. Cleaving to the Lord with an undivided heart in vowed chastity is a more effective means than sacramental marriage for growth in charity. Then lastly note, John Paul II notes that the properly ordered love involves a living virginity that can be seen as a form of therapy for the disordered loves of our age. So such therapy links easily with the notion of virginity being a unique way of making present the future eschatological age where all such disordered love of goods will be remedied. Okay, before turning the page, this page is altogether a summary on 
virginity and celibacy in the New Testament. Comments here? Castration. Yeah, so the, the tradition condemns origin. That we, we look, here's a guy who did this, took this text literally, and no, that isn't what's meant. And you know, origin himself in his writings regresses it afterwards. Um, the, the physical effects of castration uh, aren't great, apparently. Um, yeah, I think the Lord in that text, you know, it's not obvious. I think he, when he's referring to those who are made eunuchs, that probably is a reference to castration. Was making yourself a eunuch, I think, is then a spiritual sense. Would be. Other comments, thoughts? It's very politically incorrect in the church to speak of virginity as objectively a higher state of life. Uh, I'm trying to quote church documents here to say it's not just me and my particular angle articulating this. Uh, that heretical modernist John Paul II, he said it. Um, Pius XII says it's a dogma of the church. If you look at the fuller text, you can see where he's pointing in Trent as having said that. Um, one of the reasons we have few consecrated virgins in the church today is because too many in the church are embarrassed to speak of virginity as a better path to, to being united to the Lord and to somehow it being utterly adequate as a fulfillment of your life to be consecrated just to him. Okay, but our key point today, this is all there in the scriptural texts. So yes, Trent defines it as a dogma, but it's not invented that from nowhere. Page 12, St. Paul and sexuality. So I say to appreciate him, St. Paul, we need to note his context. In his writings to those in the Gentile culture, he combated two kind of repeating enemies. Stoicism, with its rejection of desires and of pleasure and its focus on self-control, but also Gnosticism, with its dualism between the body and soul. The body was evil, the soul was good. And you've probably done in patristic history this weird thing in Gnosticism that you either get it as a rigorous asceticism like the Stoics or a kind of sexual license where because the body doesn't matter I can kind of do whatever I like with it. That Gnosticism can take you in both directions and still be Gnosticism. You've come across that in where you've studied Gnosticism? Okay. Okay, so that's St. Paul's context. In contrast, I say, what is St. Paul taught about the dignity of the body and of the flesh? So he preached about the resurrection of the body. I recall 
The Greeks in Athens laughed at him when he preached about this. They viewed the body with such disdain. Why would you want to have a resurrected body back? What a laughable notion is that? So he taught a biblical anthropology of the person as a unity of body and soul, not dualism. He also used the imagery of the head and the body to describe Christ and the church, which again is meaning the body must be a good thing if you're going to be using it in imagery like that. And in contrary to stoical self-control, again and again he's talking about the Christian yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit. But a yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit that doesn't result in licentiousness, doesn't result in a freedom that has no end, but a yielding to the Holy Spirit that results in the chaste life, that results in the fruits of purity, chastity, and so forth. Okay, within all that, St. Paul talked about the correct use of sexuality in the body. So uh, he taught, the body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Uh, Michael, could you read the next quote? Continuing on 1 Corinthians. Yeah. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body? For as it is written, the two shall become one. But he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shine in morality. Every other sin that your man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I note the twofold argument for the correct deeds of the body. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and the body is united to Christ, and thus inappropriate for various sinful behaviors. St. Paul also says how repentant, the repentant Christian has been washed of the impurity of the old way of life, which he describes as fornicators, adulterers, sodomites, drunkards, revilers. So that's one way of saying all of those are bad things. Um, and a similar catalog of vices in 1 Thessalonians. So all of that, he's describing proper sexual behavior. Galatians 5, he contrasts living according to the flesh with living according and sinning according to the flesh and contrasts this with the living according to the spirit and receiving the fruits of the spirit. Uh, any comments this far? Kind of stating the obvious. So it's sometimes said that, you know, St. Paul talks a lot about sex, the Lord Jesus didn't. Well, yes, St. Paul does have much more detailed lists, but I think I've tried to already articulate the point the Lord Jesus, even if we didn't have St. Paul, it would be clear where the tradition would have unpacked, right where we are today. Okay, page 13, got two things here, um, things that will be teachings that we'll note later in bits in the course. Um, we won't dwell on either of these at length, 
but just noting that these are here in the scripture. So one is the notion of marriage as a concession and the also the, this thing called the marriage debt. So top of the page, marriage and sexual morality as a concession to desire. So I say, well, St. Paul commended celibacy. He added, however, uh, can you read for, for <clears throat> But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be a flame of passion. Because of the temptation to immorality, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not refuse one another, lest Satan tempt you with lack of self-control. I say this by way of concession, not of command. I then note there's a realism in this advice, even though it might sound rather unglamorous as a motivation for marriage. Yeah? Um, and I note that the later Christian tradition refers to a remedy for concubiscence as one of the secondary ends of marriage. And I note that even in this context, St. Paul's referring to marriage as a gift. So, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And also, he says, marriage does well. He who marries his betrothed does well, even if he who refrains from marriage will do better. So, marriage is clearly a good thing. It is a gift, even if there is an even better way in, in virginity. The marriage debt. So say here, few notions are as antithetical to modern individualism as the marriage debt. The notion being that a spouse owes his or her body to his or her spouse in sexual intercourse. So St. Paul, reformulating the Jewish tradition before him, taught, Daniel, could you read... couple notes here. I said the debt is mutual and equal. The woman has equal authority over the man in this regard. And that seems to be highly countercultural for St. Paul. Now each person no longer has sole possession of their own body. They've given themselves already to the other. And note also the contractual language with mutual obligations and rights established a framework that church canonists would build on in the centuries ahead. I yeah. just uh, watched a YouTube video yesterday from Census uh, Fidelium on the uh, authority of husband over his wife. And talked about that uh, mutual uh, where his authority actualized and spent most of his time talking about where it does not lie. And so St. Paul telling the husband and wife to yield to each other uh, is, you know, an important thing within this too. Other comments here? 
You won't yet have come across this in confession, um, but this is a difficult thing in confession when, you know, when the two spouses, if one of them is phrasing this as you owe me the marriage debt, then something's not very happy in that relationship. Um, but that is owed. So it's a real thing, but if the only way you can kind of claim it is by saying you owe it to me, there's something not working there. Um, and that really that's going to work in the longer term, in my experience, the thing that's not working there has to be resolved if they're going to stay together. Otherwise they are probably not going to stay together. And so you may have to challenge most likely the husband to say, well, yes, maybe you are owed that marriage debt, but if you want this, if you want her to stay around, um, you need to work on why she's not happy here. Refraining for a season uh, and saying, if you both agree to it, uh, I would, so, you know, you'll occasionally hear of couples who like for Lent might say, well, we'll refrain for the whole of Lent. I would just note the difficulty of, in a sense, both of them equally agreeing to that. Um, so I've never advised a couple to make that a Lenten thing. Uh, so yes, St. Paul's saying it can be a thing. Um, it can also be a, a source of friction and happiness. Um, so I wouldn't generally be recommending it in my limited, admittedly, pastoral experience. Any other comments? Okay, last page then. Christ and the church. So here we are, we noted in the prophets the introduction of this covenant model of the relationship between God and his chosen people, the covenant being like marriage. Well, in the New Testament, that is taken up a whole nother level in the personification of Christ in that. So that's what I'm going to try and summarize on this page. So Christ and the church developing the covenantal model of marriage. So as noted previously, the Old Testament prophetic books added the covenant to the vision of marriage. In the New Testament, the God-chosen people marriage is replaced by Christ the church. So where does that appear? Well, John the Baptist. John the Baptist refers to Christ as the bridegroom. Uh, David, could you read that for us? He who... He who has the bride is the bridegroom, friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. I note that the Lord Jesus clearly implies that he himself is the bridegroom. Daniel? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they have been fast. 
The apocalypse refers to him as such, uh, Michael. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The Spirit of the bride say, Come. And St. Paul refers to Christ and the church as groom and bride. Uh, Tyler. So you know lots of the recent books that have been written about priestly celibacy dwell on this theme. Um, Cardinal Ouellette's book on friends of the bridegroom. Um, likewise, various things that are configuring us because I'm configured to Christ, therefore I'm configured to the groom, therefore I love the church as my bride. Um, again and again, recent books building on this thing. Jesus, he is the groom, the church, she is his bride. And there are all kinds of parables in the Gospels. When we grasp who is the bridegroom, that it's him, many of these parables, there's a whole other level of what's going on there. Okay, what does this mean? Because this is really a course about sex, about marriage. So this gives us, therefore, I say, a model for marriage. Uh, Christopher, can you read this block quote from Ephesians? Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why? Be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so that wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. So I then make a couple notes afterwards. So the household codes... Uh, were a common literary genre of the time. And this one is written to establish a household in a Christian manner, with a Christian motivation. So, patterned on Christ, so in mutual submission, the, in the same way that God has made all things subject to Christ. Quote, in the relationship between husband and wife, the subjection is not one-sided but mutual. This is an innovation of Christ's redemption, out of love for Christ, quoting John Paul II. All of this portrays marriage as a covenant, even if it doesn't use the word covenant. The covenant requires steadfast love, as does the portrayal of marriage. And the text establishes the union of Christ and the church as the model of every marriage. So it's not that Christ and the church are modeled on marriage, but rather that marriage is modeled on Christ and the church. Lastly, the sacrificial life of Christ for the church enables 
the one flesh union of Genesis 2.24 to be understood in a way that had not been possible prior to Christ. If the spouses are to form one flesh, the husband must care for and respect his wife as he would care for and respect himself, just as Christ does for the church. Lastly, the, the, the become one flesh echoes the Genesis account, um, with Ephesians giving the third reference in the New Testament back to this text of Genesis there from the beginning. You've done St. Paul. You will do St. Paul, hopefully. <laughs> okay, so uh, there with the epistles, you'll go through this thing, the household codes, um, and I would imagine you will at least implicitly compare the Christian household codes with the pagan household codes that were kind of in circulation. Important to note what's different the difference being it's all modeled on Christ's behavior, which changes, transforms, the woman has more dignity, phrases like mutual submission and so forth. Any comments on this last page? probably only have preached on this text in the lecturing a couple times in my priesthood but uh, whenever I have I've had one of the yeah more enthusiastic but also more commentary in, in after than many other in some ways better sermons I've given that this is just very relevant so it is a mistake as you're indicating to just pass over it when the lectionary is there As well, of course, in the lecturing, it being an opportunity to preach about marriage in general. All right, so what are the key things we've been saying these two lectures together? Remind me.
And the other takeaway that, in a sense, at the risk of stating the obvious, because I've said it so many, the Bible has a lot to say on this matter. So it's not that the wicked Catholic Church has invented a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, we've only been saying this stuff for 2,000 years because it was given to us. That we went out from Jerusalem to the Gentile world with this as our message, with this as our way of life, very different from the way of life of the people we were encountering. It would have been all too easy to just follow the way of life of pagan Rome, of Greece. Um, we said something different. We offered a different way of living because this is what we had received from the Lord. And to kind of connect back, Michael made the point about virtue, ethics and things with this, that this is a better way of living. That the scripture, what it offers is a better way of living. Uh, so, and we need to be convinced of that on all kinds of levels, but also convinced that we have received this from the Bible. We have received this from the Lord. And every time we're tempted to compromise, every time we're tempted to just, in a polite conversation, fail to say the awkward thing, we are failing to give people the truth that is our mission. Which doesn't mean you lead every conversation with talking about this, um, but we always need to be thinking, part of what I have to say to this person is this. And maybe I recognize in this conversation today, this isn't the moment, but it's not that I don't want to say it. It's just I'm recognizing this isn't the moment. And sometimes this isn't the moment and I never have the moment with that person and I somehow in prayer have to entrust that person to someone else to come along. But it has to always be on my heart. I want to say this for them. Not just because I got a thing to say. Okay, okay let's close in prayer. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, who was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Lord be with you. And mighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.